Welcome to Explore History's podcast on the medieval knight chivalry and the modern world. I'm Dr. Scott McClay and I will be leading you through this episode entitled Chivalry in the Post-Medieval World. This is part one. Earlier in this series of podcasts, we've been exploring the rise of the medieval knight and the code of chivalry that came to be associated with him. By the late 15th century, this military role of the knight was being diminished. It was waning. Yet the displays of chivalry, such as the tournament, continued to play a prominent role. Figures like King Arthur and St. George figured prominently in plays and festivals and at tournaments, all reinforcing the importance of the chivalric ideal. You might think that the impact of chivalry in the medieval knight would have ended there in the 16th century, but it did not. In fact, I would argue that the chivalric ideals that we have been examining maintain their influence, their significance, although in different forms, um, throughout the development of our culture, our modern world, right to the present day. As we saw with the Tudors in chivalry, it could be used and manipulated to achieve certain goals, influence behavior, and create support for the monarch. This would in part continue into the 17th century, but chivalry's influence would go well beyond this, and I will argue here that quite often in times of chaos, conflict, and uncertainty, people have looked to chivalry, drawn upon its code of behavior, its myths surrounding the medieval knight and his world, or an idealized version of his world, to influence their own society. So let's get started. So we'll begin our analysis by looking at the Stuarts. Elizabeth I dies in 1603, and James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England. So we have the Stuart monarchy on the throne, and they their perceptions, their views of monarchy were quite different than what it, the Tudors had been. Uh, very much uh, absolutist. They believed in divine right, um, so that the monarch was sort of next to God, and they really saw society quite differently. We still see chivalry, the tournament, and these sorts of things moving into the 17th century. Um, they're very popular right up to the 1620s, so throughout the reign of James I. But they change from that period, from the time when Charles uh, I comes on the throne in 1625. And I guess the question we have to ask is, well, why is this change? What is the role of chivalry at this time? Now, there's been a lot of debates about this uh, in the literature, um, in part because we have certain things carrying on. For example, we still see tournaments taking place. They play a very prominent role early in the Stuart period. So there's not, a, you know, it doesn't stop simply because we have a new monarch on the throne in 1603. But we do see a change. We do see, for example, uh, by the 1620s, the whole idea of the tournament um, being lampooned in literature, um, you know, poked fun at. Um, the knight, the medieval knight is becoming an anachronism, and society, in a sense, was moving on. At the same time, though, you did have people looking back to the Tudor period and earlier as kind of a golden age, and so still some wanting to hang on to that. A lot of the literature is pointed to something like dueling, uh, dueling was a very serious problem in the 17th century. Now, early in the late Tudor period, early 17th century, duels tended to be fought with broadswords, broadsword and shield. Uh, very violent, but it was rare that somebody was actually killed. Um, you might get some bruises, some broken bones, but not as many fatalities. But then there was a change, and that was with the introduction of the rapier. Very long, thin uh, sword, very needle-like and this, of course, could uh, penetrate the body very easily, and we have an increase in deaths. 
Uh, this was something which becomes incredibly prevalent uh, in England, but more so on the continent, in Italy and France. And it's estimated that uh, the King of France issued as many as 6,000 pardons for deaths by dueling in the first decade of the 17th century alone. Now, there's been a big debate about, is this part of chivalry or is it something else? And it was always considered that this was chivalry that was driving this, that, uh, that code of honor that people were um, adhering to. What has now been determined um, by some very good research is that this in part, at least in part, was coming from Italy and this whole idea of, of honor uh, conflict which was there. And this is being imported into uh, Britain. Now this makes a lot of sense because this is the very same time we see a lot of Italian influence, Renaissance influences, coming from Italy into uh, France and then across the Channel into England. And so you can see that this is probably having a huge influence, but I also think the, the idea of chivalry is still there. We still know it's being talked about, it's being written about, tournaments are still taking place, and there's still this real focus on honor. Later in the 17th century and into the 18th century, the rapier is replaced once again with another technology, the pistol. So we have pistols replacing swords in duels, and you would think that this would make the number of deaths increase, but actually it doesn't. And this is because as the weapons are becoming more dangerous, like the pistol, they're very inaccurate. Uh, more rules were put in place. People recognized there's a great possibility of some kind of damage being done, of uh, maybe a fatality. And so what we see from an early stage, even from the, the, the reign of James I, we see a concerted effort to try and suppress duels, to try and sort of codify it so that it's less dangerous. So this is something that's happening over the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, it also declines under the, uh, the reign of Charles I and during the interregnum, but it sort of has a resurgence in the Restoration period after 1660. We see regular complaints in the 18th century that dueling had, quote, become fashionable. So we're looking at a very important factor here in dueling, one that is probably influenced by the ideals of chivalry, but also is something coming out of this uh, influence of Renaissance ideals of Italian practices uh, in this period. And what we see in many ways is that I think something like chivalry, very, parts of it are very important and can be used by a monarch like Charles I. And I think we do see that. However, it also doesn't really fit his court. Um, the court of Charles I was very much about decorum. It was about good behavior. And it was quite different. And I would explain it very simply. You look at the Tudor court, what would you expect to see? I would expect to see deerhounds, wolfhounds. It's hunting, Hampton Court, tons of antlers up on the walls. You go to the court of Charles I, oh, a good hunt is still popular, but now we're talking lapdogs, you know, the Charles Spaniel. And that kind of reflects this change that we see. It's a much more refined Renaissance court which has been adopted, more in line with what we see in Catholic Spain and France. And the whole idea of the chivalric knight and tournaments doesn't really fit with that. Although, again, they are still taking place, they're still having an influence. But the court was very different. And what we see in the 1620s is that the whole idea of knights and chivalry are becoming objects of satire. And all you have to do is think of, you know, some of the, well, perhaps the, the great figure in literature at this time, Don Quixote, tilting at windmills. And so that really 
that sort of episode alone really shows how people were now looking at the knight as, as more of a satirical figure. And it maybe wasn't having quite the same kind of impact that it had. But chivalry and the knight were being transformed to better fit the ideals of Charles' refined Catholic Spanish-looking court. And so it became all about the virtues that contributed to the ideal gentleman, about gentlemanly behavior. And so, still extremely important, but it's different to not focus specifically on the knight on horseback, but it's taking those ideals and using it to create what was a real sense of what a gentleman should be. And this at a time when gentlemen, the middle class, were on the rise. There were more of them in society, and they're looking for a way to kind of frame who they are and what their role in society is. In our examination of this period as well, we also have to remember, um, as I started out at the beginning, that this is a period of intense change. When we look at the 17th century, we have a great deal of religious conflict. Um, we have the witch hunts. We have a mass migration in the 1630s, the Great Migration to um, North America. Uh, because of all the turmoil which was going on, we have civil war um, in the interregnum. Um, all this upheaval and, and challenges to government and to monarchy. And in all of this, there's a great deal of uncertainty. And I think for many people, looking back to the age of the knights, the medieval knight, and to this code of chivalry is something that they could adhere to, something that they could understand and that they could use effectively. And we see this again later on when we see another major change in society, another major sort of crisis emerging. And in this I'm talking about the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution began in the early to mid-18th century. The 18th and 19th centuries were a time of rapid change when Britain and indeed all of Europe were transformed from a rural agriculturally based society to one that was urban and industrial. It was an age of reform of new ideologies and the rise of class. It was the age of Dickens, of the factory, urban slums and pollution. It was also an age that saw the rise of nationalism, driven on by the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, the expansion of empires. Perhaps it was only natural in this rapidly changing world that the men and women of Great Britain would look to their past in their quest to reinvent British identity. And the result was the Gothic Revival. Now, in order to better understand how the concept of chivalry was used in the 18th and 19th centuries, we're going to examine three influential examples. Horace Walpole and Strawberry Hill, the Eglinton Tournament of 1839, and the development of the Gothic style of architecture and design. First of all, we need to understand this transition. In the 18th century, agriculture was still the dominant activity. Peasants were the most numerous class. Life centered on the family, and village life. The richest and most powerful class were the aristocracy. They dominated the countryside and they enjoyed special privileges. But with industrialization, things changed rapidly. Agricultural villages and handicraft manufacturing lost importance. Aristocratic power and values declined. The middle class increased in numbers, in power and influence. Industrialization brought democratization. The middle class gained the vote, 1832 and it hastened the secularization of European life. But generally, religion was lessening its hold on society. In short, during the late 18th century, Great Britain went through a rapid transformation unlike any ever witnessed. Britain was rapidly transformed from a rural to an urban society, 
commercial and financial services expanded to meet the needs of manufacturers, new roles were constructed for individuals and families. We see factories or mills springing up anywhere there was a source of power. First of all, this was wherever there was a good bit of moving water, a good river, and later on, coal. The new mills were mostly operated by women and children. Men rarely went into the factories early on. One, because mill owners had to pay them more. Um, also, they didn't like the discipline of the factory. Factory work demanded submission to a work discipline which was unfamiliar. Employees had to be geared to the rhythm of the machine. 12, 14 hour days, six days a week, Sundays off, and maybe a couple holidays a year, Christmas and Easter. And such demands were totally alien to the work traditions of the rural 18th century. Employers therefore had a good reason to hire women and children. They could do the work, they could be paid less, and they're more likely to put up with a strict discipline. We see the population of towns dramatically change. Industrialization brought workers together into great urban slums, breaking contact with the tradesmen guilds of the past and with rural life. Industrialization meant the majority of industrial workers were exposed to a greater risk of an early death, accident or disease, we have outbreaks of typhus and cholera, and so on. Industrialization also meant that workers developed attitudes that were different or inherently hostile to the rest of society, and a middle class which dominated politically, economically, and culturally. It heralded in a class society with new ideologies, a society filled with political tension, fear, and mistrust, a society of machines and technology, of progress, and of resistance to this technology. And this really sets the stage for what we see developing at this time, beginning with the Gothic Revival. It was in this industrial context that many looked to the past for answers, for a way to celebrate the British way of life and a new British identity. And so the Gothic Revival was born. Gothic was known in medieval times as the French style and generally referred to architecture. Typical Gothic architecture is distinguished by two principal features, elevation and light. It is best defined by spiky, fanciful stonework, barrel-vaulted ceilings, dramatic heights punctuated by lofty spires, and walls that give the appearance of tall columns set between windows in which stained glass makes the most of available light to bathe interiors in color. Interest in the growth of Gothic design in the 18th and 19th centuries was part of a broader interest in the medieval world. Medieval culture was widely admired throughout Europe in the 18th and early 19th centuries, as it was seen as an alternative to the Industrial Age. We see medieval-style jousts being regularly held in Sweden between 1777 and 1800. Plays and theatrical works based upon medieval themes were extremely popular, with Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe playing in six different productions London alone in 1820. Numerous artists focused their attention on painting Gothic ruins, and so we have people like J.W.M. Turner painting a lot of different ruins. And we have someone like Sir Horace Walpole, who goes beyond just painting and designs his own. Sir Horace Walpole was born in London in 1717, the son of Prime Minister Sir Robert Walpole. He's best known for his Gothic novel, The Castle of Otranto, but he wrote a wide range of other works. There's a nice connection between Walpole and many different places, because often he would go and visit um, to get inspiration. And so we see him connecting with many of the old ruins, ruined castles in the landscape. In 1747, he moved to Twickenham on the outskirts of London, where he bought a small house on five acres known as Strawberry Hill. 
He bought Strawberry Hill knowing that it needed a great deal of work. Quote, I've got an extremely pretty place just by Twickenham, which I am likely to be pleased with for at least some time, as I have many alterations to make. The prospect is delightful, the house very small, till I added two or three rooms scarcely habitable. He gradually expanded the estate to 46 acres and transformed the house into a castle, a Gothic masterpiece, at a cost of £21,000. It's an enormous amount of money at that time. He established a committee of taste with several friends to decide on the direction the renovation should take. Walpole's method was to borrow details from various Gothic buildings and adapt them to his purposes. For example, tombs at Westminster and Canterbury were the inspiration for the fireplaces and chimneys at Strawberry Hill. He also added battlements and other features to provide the house with the character of a castle. Writing to a friend in 1753, Walpole described his renovations in vivid detail. Quote, now you shall walk into the house. The bow window below leads into a little parlor hung with stone-colored Gothic paper. From hence under, under those gloomy arches, you come to the hall and staircase, which is impossible to describe to you, and is the most particular and chief beauty of the castle. Imagine the walls covered with Gothic fretwork, the Gothic balustrade to the staircase, adorned with antelopes bearing shields, lean windows fattened with rich saints and painted glass, and a vestibule open with three arches on the landing place, and niches full of trophies of old coats of mail, broadswords, quivers, longbows, arrows, and spears. The original kitchen was turned into a china room, the floor laid with tiles bearing coats of arms. In 1761, a great cloister and a round tower were added. The chimney piece of the round tower was inspired by the tomb of Edward the Confessor in Westminster Abbey. Our next example was an event which caught the attention of a nation caught in reform agitation and agricultural unrest. This is the Eglinton Tournament. This was a reenactment of a medieval joust held in Scotland in August of 1839. It was organized by Archibald Montgomery, the 13th Earl of Eglinton, took place at his home, Eglinton Castle. Montgomery's stepfather and half-brother were rabidly devoted to the Middle Ages and convinced him that a tournament was desirable. In the autumn of 1838, 150 prospective knights met in the showroom of Samuel Pratt, a London dealer in medieval armour, to discuss the tournament. Many backed out when they found out just how expensive it would be, but around 40 were determined to take part despite the cost. Samuel Pratt was in charge of all the preparations, supplying the armor, the banners, pavilions, costumes, and also supplied the stands, marquees, and tents. The armor used was all supposed to be original medieval armor, but the only existing suit that we know was actually used at the tournament has been proven to be a forgery. A rehearsal took place in London where 2,690 elite guests were invited. The tournament was an event which attracted a great deal of attention, particularly amongst the British upper class. Tories appeared to love the idea, while liberals and reformers were outraged at such a fantasy at a time when the country was full of tension, hardship, and political upheaval. So it's like, kind of like what the Olympics does sometimes. You have people that support and deny and argue the money could be better used, yet it goes ahead anyways. Eglinton Castle was, like Walpole's Strawberry Hill, an imitation Gothic an 18th century mansion with battlements and turrets added to make it look medieval. Public was welcome with tickets to the event being free, but Montgomery did request that anyone attending be in fancy medieval dress, which meant, of course, that only wealthy people could afford to attend. 
As word spread, thousands applied for tickets. A scrapbook of over 1,000 of the letters requesting tickets still survives. It shows that many of those applying made a point of professing their Tory sympathies. On the eve of the event, they were looking at estimates of around 100,000 visitors, far more than the local infrastructure in southern Scotland could accommodate. The few hotels available were booked. Railways and roads were jammed for miles, and the stands were built to hold just 2,000 people. The tournament was, when they finally got it underway, a grand celebration of chivalry and medievalism but is best remembered for the torrential rain that plagued the festivities. In all, the Eglinton tournament was very much an aristocratic, conservative affair. It demonstrated to many just how separated the upper classes were from the realities of urban industrial life and the great need for social and political reform. Another good example of the Gothic that we see at this time, right around the same period as the Eglinton uh, tournament was taking place, is Parliament. On the night of 16th October 1834, the Houses of Parliament at Westminster burnt down. A completely new structure was required, and when it was built, it was done so in the Gothic style. It was designed by Sir Charles Barry, a highly skilled architect. Ornamentation was by Augustus Welby Pugin, a man with a long interest in medieval art. And it remains one of the finest examples of architecture from the Gothic Revival. The Gothic Revival grew in significance from this point in the 1830s throughout the 19th century, influencing a generation of designers and creating a uniquely British style that has become synonymous with the Victorians. Men like Pugin for architecture and later William Morris with the arts and crafts movement brought the Middle Ages to the modern world in a way which challenged the hold industrialization had upon their society. It was due to a combination of a love and appreciation of the medieval style and a rejection of the modern factory system. It was a natural world versus mechanization, the individual artist versus the machine. And so what we see as we look through this period, really from the end of the Tudor period to the late 19th century, is that when we get these periods of intense conflict, of social unrest and uncertainty, we get at least a core of people looking back to the medieval, drawing upon the ideas of chivalry to support their views, to give them something to adhere to, and to um, something to appreciate and to love. And we see that in the Eglinton Tournament. We see it in the designs that were developed in buildings like the British Parliament and all across society. Whenever we get these, these intense periods of unrest, people tend to look back and it doesn't end in the 19th century. We would see this emerge again when other periods of intense conflict and unrest um, would happen in the 20th century, particularly in the two world wars and beyond. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And um, it's given you something to think about and maybe some ideas of, of things to read and some research, uh, something which I'll get into a little bit more in the final podcast. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast, um, please you know sign up to our Facebook. Uh, you can go on to the Explore History uh, website, explorehistory.co.uk, and you can sign up to our newsletter. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And um, if you like listening to the podcast and uh, enjoying it, we now have a, um, a button on the website that you can um, make a donation to help us can keep things going, paying for the 
um, all the stuff that it takes for us to do uh, to keep this. But of course, the podcast and everything else we do at Explore History will remain free. It's all simply up to you. But we're going to keep doing this and um, we'll get on to the next one shortly. The final one, which is going to look at um, chivalry in the 20th century.